Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, a new ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Lara Krieger. Hello, hello. And we are very excited to kick things off today with Jillian Del Signore. Hello, thank you. She is an expert in all things ETFs. She is currently on the board of Women in ETFs. She has a track record in ETF distribution through JP Morgan, business development at BlackRock. She has done a lot and has a lot to say. So we first just very quickly want to set the stage here and let you know what we're trying to achieve. Laura, you want to tell us? Right. So, so we wanted to start a podcast that uh, kind of took to heart the Women in ETFs motto of uh, connect, support, and inspire. We're connecting uh, listeners with new voices that they might not have heard. Uh, we're supporting women in the industry by amplifying those voices. And uh, we're hoping to inspire listeners with some actionable insights and and uh, market moving trends and so on and so forth. So um, we're pretty excited yeah. to start and to show you what we have. And in case you're wondering, our name is because we are the ladies who work through luncheon. So <laughs> welcome to our podcast, Julian. Why don't you give us like you know the latest on what's up with women in ETFs, some of the latest accomplishments, yeah. and things we can be happy about? Well, first of all, thank you for this. This is awesome, and we're so excited to be a part of it. And thank you for having me on this this really first episode um, of the podcast. So we just at Inside ETFs recently celebrated our seventh annual breakfast, which is the sixth anniversary of the organization. We kicked it off at Inside ETFs. They've been a tremendous partner um, in supporting the organization. And that first year in 2014, we had less than 100 people in the room. And uh, at the breakfast that Monday morning in Florida, uh, this year we had over 400 people standing room only. So we're super excited. Um, We have 5,700 members globally. That's um, across... Five continents, twelve countries. You know, a host of chapters in the U.S. Um, incredibly excited about what we're doing. What makes me excited? You mentioned the the mission of Connect, Support, and Inspire. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about the the evolution of women in ETFs, one of the things that we're incredibly proud of is that we don't just talk about doing things; we actually take action and affect change. And I think one really good example of that, and we've seen it take impact at this conference, or I'm sorry, the Inside ETF conference specifically, is the Speakers Bureau. And I know we've helped you sort of tap that for this podcast. And we're really excited about the fact that we've been able to put together a very long list of women speakers in the industry. We had a goal when we started this um, 18 to 24 months ago of getting the number of women speakers, the percentage of women speakers at industry conferences over 25% in two years. I'm really proud to say that inside ETFs this year, there was 28% of the women were, or the speakers, excuse me, were female. Mm -hmm. So we really are excited about the action we've been able to take as an organization to affect change. Um, In my new role as co-head of mentorship and leadership, um, we're really focused on developing, we have it in a couple of chapters um, in the US and in Europe, one-to-one mentorship pairings, um, but are gonna continue to evolve that into additional chapters, expand our university outreach and connect university outreach to mentorship. And then hopefully one of my goals, because I've been really blessed in my career to have peer mentors. So Mm -hmm. women in my life and men who have gone through similar career changes 
at similar times. And so we're going to try to evolve our peer-to-peer mentorship as well. So incredibly excited about the growth. I will mention that we have about 20% of our members are men. So men listening, please do also become a member and we hope to get you involved as well. Well, let's now tackle the meat of this conversation, yes. <laughs> which is... Not that that's not the meat. No, You're talking exactly. to a vegan, so let's maybe <laughs> call like the... <laughs> The beans of the conversation or something. Uh, The tofu. tofu. Yes, that's right. Uh, So you have been like super influential in the ETF distribution ecosystem. So let's talk about the challenge, you know, with a market that's just growing in. 200 new ETFs come to market every year. Uh, How do you get the product in front of the advisor or the investor? You know, talk us through the path, the challenges that issuers are facing today. Definitely. I, you know, I, th- I think it's a, a lot of different things. And, and maybe I can take you through kind of a life cycle of a, a product and then tack something on at the end. If you think about sort of this a successful life cycle of a product, and I don't mean from life to death, I'm sort of from... From, <laughs> from life to closure. Yeah, from, <laughs> from, from birth to success, if you will. It's getting harder and harder to take something from zero, right? And if you think about... Um, the, the path of least resistance, if you will, um, when you launch a product is going to be the custodial platforms. You know, you launch a product, it's going to go up um, and you're going to be able to access the RIA community. Um, and uh, when we had a world where non-transaction fee platforms were very important, that was a barrier, right? And so you had to really think thoughtfully about whether or not you wanted to put that product on the NTF platform. That for all intents and purposes, has gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you hope to be able to gain enough scale to get it of a size that makes it eligible to be approved by an independent broker-dealer like a Raymond James and then a Merrill Lynch. But the devil's in the details there because, yes, you can get it available somewhere, but is it available in the right place where an advisor is buying their products? Is it on the right platform within Merrill or Morgan or UBS mm-hmm. or Raymond James? And then you want to get it research recommended, right? Because then it has a bit of a stamp for the advisors to look at. Then you can think about getting it in a model portfolio. So there's all these different steps that you go to in order to get a product sufficiently commercialized, if you will, at the end of the day. Um, and the other thing I think that's gotten more and more challenging is not only to sort of get it through those, those stages of life, um, but also differentiation, right? There, to your point, there are thousands of products in market and to an advisor it's very difficult for he or she to differentiate and so what I've found is if you can come to them with resources not necessarily my product versus your product but how can I help you think about portfolio construction and where does this product fit in your portfolio if you replace this product with my product what does that do to the overall portfolio. Um, with the removal of commissions, we actually saw a huge um, a huge number of advisors that were looking to engage in that conversation. They were saying, okay, I don't have to pay commissions on any of these ETFs. I'm going to rethink the way I'm building my portfolios because I no longer have to worry about that. If that was one of my due diligence components, it's gone away. And so we were able to engage in really meaningful portfolio construction conversations with advisors who were saying, I'm going to rethink the way I'm going about this, start over, let's start to have a dialogue. So I'm, I'm hearing, uh, it, it sounds to me like from here on out, issuers really need to consider 
being part of ETF model portfolios as, as a step in their distribution process, a step in their sales process. You can't just build it and they will come um, anymore, yes. right? ETFs are not bought, they are sold, right? Um, and I do think model portfolios, I feel like it's become a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, they've been around for quite some time. A lot of issuers have been doing them for quite a long time. But it is, if you think about commercialization of products, if you can take a set of products and put them inside this model, you're not having to sell each individual fund one by one. And so you're able to commercialize a suite in many cases through selling a model. And you look at some of the home offices and you see them, they are launching their own model portfolios. Merrill Lynch launched something earlier in the year. Um, TD Ameritrade has their model marketplace. And there's a whole host of others. I don't mean to just call those two out. Um, But it is a really interesting way to get at advisors. Primarily what I would call, at least within the RIA community, the long tail. Mm-hmm. But if you talk to the more of the, the, the larger RIAs, I don't even want to put a number on it, but just say larger RIAs, mm-hmm. um, who look at themselves as those are the ones that are going to be building the portfolios, doing the due diligence, um, have the, the, the investment teams of the CFAs, they're doing that themselves. Maybe they use models for smaller accounts, but what you find is that for that long tail, you know, sub $100 million RIAs, again, I don't, don't love putting a number on it, but just use sure. that as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, they may look at themselves as more of an asset gatherer, not mm. an asset manager. And so they would they value hiring a manager that they can just consume their model portfolio off the shelf and fire if they need to, right, mm-hmm. as well. And you're starting to see um, a lot of the, um, the, the wirehouse home offices start to do the same thing. Um, it's just a way for them to help their advisors focus on asset gathering and hire, or hire someone else out to do the asset management. Because outside uh, of this approach of the model portfolio, if mm-hmm. you are a new issuer coming to market today, yeah. you know there's that the milestone you have to cross and a lot of a lot of advisor screens, which is yes. the minimum assets under management. Yeah. So we've seen a lot of newcomers have what we call the bring your own assets to the table, That's right. right? And is that the way forward now? If you really want to carve new inroads into the space, if you want to reach especially the larger IRAs that are mm-hmm. building their own portfolios. How do you get in front of them unless you start high? Hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars. Yeah, and I think so. I think a lot of things there. There's a lot to unpack there. I think number one, you could start to think about seeding these products with more money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have the question around, well, it's really not diversified asset base, right? It's just a receipt capital, and so that could be a challenge. Um, but yes, it is getting harder and harder to take something from zero. And so whether it's BYOA or some sort of anchor tenant, as I would call them, um, you see a lot. A lot of the ESG products have had these anchor tenants that have come in, right? Yeah, and they're like that a, first investor. Susol and USSG. Exactly. Both had, she. Yeah. She. Too. Yeah. So you see a lot of them. And they were very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that these are tactics. I've have the BYOA have been very successful. And I think it's observing your internal affiliates and that can mean any you know different things to different firms but to see do you have a client because these internal affiliates at the end of the day typically are clients of the asset management firm um, to be able to really harness that and have them as that seed investor Um, it really does it gets you off the ground however if you do remain fairly concentrated in that single investor you have the same problem that you would if it was just your seed capital you know these um whether it's rias or other platforms that's great you've got assets but is it trading right because like 
if it's one single investor, is it actually trading regularly? Uh, it's not a diversified asset base. So things that as an ETF industry, we know we can debunk in many cases, but it's still a real concern of other investors when um, it is sort of that single sole uh, seed investor. Yeah, it sounds like it's an evolving challenge, even though we're yeah. 27 years in, in the ETF it market. It really is. It's a constantly well, changing. And that commercialization process, you know, if you think about product development and, and, and you're taking an ETF from an idea to execution, you know, it's what does the landscape look like? Am I bringing something new or am I bringing something in that's lower cost, differentiate, you know, all the different things you go through when you're thinking about bringing your product to market. Having that commercialization plan pre, like in the idea phase, is becoming just more and more critically important to understand who is my buyer? Is this product going to be saleable to an RIA? Because you know that's the place it's going to be able to go. And if it's not interesting to them, how are you going to take that from zero to 50 to 100 to 200 to even get it a pl- you know, available at some of these other platforms? So you really have to think about who's going to buy it first. Well, if you are starting an ETF business and you need a mentor to figure this out, there's great mentors in the community. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so we uh, recently met up at Inside ETFs 2020, which was kind of a, you know, it's the Super Bowl yes. of the ETF industry, right? So, I, I wanted to ask you, what were your main takeaways from that yeah. conference? What sort of conversations were you having on the ground with folks? Yeah, uh, first of all, it's such a great opportunity to get together. For me, it feels like a family reunion. This is my 10th straight year at this conference, or at that conference, excuse me, and um, it really is the only place you can go to see everyone who matters in the industry at one time. Mm -hmm. Um, And keep yourself caught up on the trends, right? And I think that's what we started to see um, this year when we were all down there together was a couple things stood out. Um, so we did a, a host of things with, with women in ETFs. I did start to notice, um, like I mentioned, there was a lot more female representation on panels mm-hmm. and panel discussions. Um, I had the honor of doing the introduction for an amazing session with Alpha Girls. So Julian Guthrie and uh, Magdalena uh, Yaseel, who talked about um, being women. Uh, well, Julian is the author that wrote the book Alpha Girls, and Magdalena was one of the women um, that were highlighted. Um, but talking about being a woman in a male-dominated industry, um, venture capital in Silicon Valley. So that was actually mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, from an investment perspective, there was a couple things that stood out to me. Um, one was ESG. And I'll hit on each of these you know, in a minute, but ESG, non-transparent active. Um, and I actually moderated a panel on defensive investing. And the hmm. room was jammed, mm-hmm. um, standing room only. And a little pressure. Uh, but it was a really good discussion <laughs> with three investors um, and one gentleman who was a head of pro- ETF product and an issuer. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say investors, like um, boutique asset managers, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'll start there. So clearly we are you know, 10 plus years into a a bull market, long in the tooth. Um, We have a presidential election coming up at the tail end of the year in the U.S. There's a lot of uncertainty. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. Well, one of the gentlemen on the panel actually said, Manish Kata, actually said that he had a client that was about to sign on a dotted line to open up an account with him and said that he was concerned about the coronavirus. It's crazy. And he was like, are you you serious? Like, (laughs) um, but uh, but that stuff is real, right? And it's concerning. And so the the conversation we were having was about weatherproofing your portfolio. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about tactical investing and, you know, does risk management 
management even exist anymore? Can you stay invested and be effectively defensive? Two people on the panel the two were very tactical, and then the one other investor was like, no, 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 risk management worked. And so it was a really interesting um, dialogue back and forth. Bottom line is people are really thinking about being defensive in their portfolio positioning. Um, the other one, uh, ESG, I think is continuing to really catch on. I know your eye, uh, Laura, I, I know, thing. I know it is. My eyes just Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, you've been yes on my flight to Florida, um, when I was flying down that Saturday evening, I listened to one a podcast that you had done and talked about this. And, you know, the European market is, is well ahead of where we are in the U.S. And I think in the U.S., what we've seen is a whole lot of bark and very little bite so True. far, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think people are a little bit skeptical, mm-hmm. um, including some of the, the pundits uh, <laughs> and that, uh, that I know you do the podcast with. But, you know, I, I am a believer that people are going to want to get more and more customized in what they're doing. And I think there could be potentially an interesting cross-section um, with ESG in the ETF world, also direct indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's a really interesting thing that could start to develop there. So I'm, I am keeping my eye on, on ESG um, from that perspective. Um, so there was a lot of chatter about ESG here at the conference. And you are, and you made the point on the podcast I listened to, there are dollars following it at this mm-hmm. point. Um, some of it is likely the, the um, anchor investors, sure. but nonetheless, there are assets going there. And BlackRock clearly made a lot of noise um, recently with what they were talking about um, in, their, in their letter to clients. Um, non-transparent active. One of my biggest takeaways is we need to stop calling it non-transparent active. <laughs> we are calling it semi-transparent. Semi-transparent, just right? For the record. And yeah. I think people would even take offense to that. I think it's people have started to just call it active equity, right? Mm, um, and it's not fair. I don't think that's fair either. I see semi-transparent. Yeah. But I think semi-transparent yeah. is is a, is a better acronym, not acronym, a better uh, definition mm-hmm. of what people are doing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's been really interesting. There's a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of traditionally active managers who actually came to the conference just to sort of observe that are looking to enter the market um, either through the semi-transparent structure, any of the five or six that there are out there now. Um, they're also potentially looking to enter through active fixed income um, mm. where you can be transparent. The PMs are less concerned about that. So I think this active, whether it be equity, semi-transparent um, or fully transparent uh, or active fixed income, which has been proven in some senses, mm-hmm. mainly in short duration fixed income, but we are seeing right. traction there. That to me is interesting to, to keep your eye on. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things happening. We've seen a lot of action in fixed income. There's a lot of well known asset managers looking to enter the ETF industry through the semi transparent wrapper. Um, and I do believe that they have to have commercialization plans in place for these products. And so that's an area that I was keenly interested in paying more attention to and trying to understand what's coming. Well, sounds like 2020 could be the year active finally takes off. Mm-hmm. We've been waiting for about 20 of them, so we'll see. <laughs> and ESG becomes, you know, the big new thing. We'll see, right? So we'll yeah. see. Well, we have, probably should leave it there. Yeah, I'm going to be waiting on Tender Hooks to, to find out what happens next. So thank you to our guest, Jillian, um, for you. the great insights uh, and the great conversation. For more info on this topic or about anything on ETFs, or to catch the next episode, please visit us at etf.com. And for more information on how to get involved in women in ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. You can write to us with your questions, comments, and thoughts at ETF Working Lunch. That's all one word at etf.com. On behalf of Cynthia Murphy, myself, and the rest of the etf.com team, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.